So we don't have any employees. We handle about 17,000 units every month, and we have zero employees because data drives everything. It drives how we acquire customers, it drives how we place orders, it drives how we optimize. Welcome to Subscriptions Scale, sponsored by Rebar Technology. Join us each week to hear from industry leaders in the subscription space, share their best tips and stories, and learn how you can up-level your subscription business today. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Subscription Scaled. I'm your host, Nick Frederick. With me today from across the pond is Avi Zilti, who is the founder of EarFleek. Avi, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Nick. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah, thanks for joining me so late in the day. I really appreciate that. Why don't we start at the beginning here? Tell our listeners about your background, how you started the business, and just some history there. Absolutely. So I am a typical, atypical startup entrepreneur. I left home when I was 19 and moved to Silicon Valley to chase the uh, Silicon Valley dream. I went through YC, uh, founded a couple startups, and I'm actually right now here in Cambridge getting back on the academic path doing my MBA. And Earfleek, the idea was I'd worked in subscription boxes specifically around uh, fashion for, gosh, seven, eight years now. And I realized there's a huge arbitrage opportunity with how people at least used to bid on Facebook. So the idea of Earfleek started off as if you have a really, really low priced subscription box, A, you'll have really, really high conversions. So people will try you out. And then Mm -hmm. as long as you offer a good product, the churn will be substantially less because people won't be churning out because they can't afford the subscription. And beyond that, it was just around finding the perfect price point, then obviously making sure the unit economics allow you to be able to scale at that mm-hmm. point. Awesome. Well, let's go there a little bit. Is Facebook the exclusive marketing channel for Earfleek or are you using others as well? That's a good question. Right now, it is almost exclusively. We have some other like, you know, grandfathered in programs, but I definitely think that we're missing out there. I think that all those video ad platforms, whether it's TikTok or YouTube, have a huge amount of opportunity for a subscription box customer acquisition. And that's just something that's on me that I need to get on. Never enough hours in the day, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm curious. So, you know, looking at the product itself, you guys are offering, it's it's 350 a month, right? US dollars for a single pair of earrings. And I'm assuming because it's a small product, pretty easy to ship, right? No major logistical headaches there. Have you ever offered the product a different way, maybe a higher plan or anything like that? Or you're trying to stay in this price point sweet spot of, you know, staying under $5? That's a really great question. So so we actually, we've tested out and we actually offer a higher end, it's $9.95 a month on your product. But I think at some point you really need to focus, or at least our perspective has been, really need to focus on doing one thing exceptionally well. And, you know, that's really a question. Like if we wanted to sell high-end jewelry, if we wanted to have a, you know, jewelry box, maybe it would look slightly different. Mm -hmm. And if we're really going after a mass market, super affordable, you know, you can go in tangents of like, what are we really selling? Are we selling jewelry? We sell experience. But if we want to create that product, we really wanted to stay focused on pushing that product. Right. Do you find or is your hypothesis at least that at that price point, well below a typical subscription box or really most of any subscription these days, that you're at a point where it's the type of thing from a customer perspective where they're saying, 
hey, I'm getting this every month. It's kind of cool. But even if I don't like some of the ones that I get, it's at a price point where it's not even worth canceling or I'll just wait for the next one. Or, you know, is that kind of why you're trying to stay at that price point? Sure. So I definitely think that's part of it. So you can kind of think about subscription businesses backwards, right? Instead of thinking, I'm going to sell this product at this price point, how do I acquire customers? And then, then obviously, how do I acquire customers at a certain percentage of the money, I mean, the lifetime value of that customer? Instead, mm-hmm. you can think of it as, how do I maximize customer acquisition, which will set the lifetime value I need, right? So it's like the opposite way. And so again, like when we founded it, the whole idea was lifetime value is obviously a function of how long users stay, quantified by churn, and how much money you make off them every month, right? So 100%, a huge part of the underlying, I guess you could say underwriting of our business is in the fact that we're keeping a super low churn rate, right? So people are coming here and they're saying, you know, even if I don't love this product, I'll stay another month. I can talk a little bit about, I think we have a lot of data solutions that have allowed us to make sure people do get what they want. But at the end of the day, I mean, $3.50, you're much less likely to turn out than if we were charging you 50, 60, or even $10 a month, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. So I've been doing subscription for almost 20 years now and came from a a merchant that I worked for previously who had a lot of products that were at a a similar price point. Just, you know, a lot of them hovering right around that $5 a month. Some of these were insurance products, right? And this has been turned on its head in recent years of subscription. But back then, it was the set and forget it mentality, right? Go out, find your customer and whatever means you did that. Direct mail was big back then. But you know, if it's at the right price point, the, the likelihood that a customer is going to notice it and then want to cancel it is much lower than if you're charging, obviously, you know, something much higher. You know, 100 percent. And like, actually, now that you bring it up, that's actually a much better way of saying it. Right. So like we are trying to be treated like a SaaS subscription rather than a product subscription. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of difficult because when you're sending someone a product, they're constantly reminded. Right. Um, right. It's a, but you're 100% right. Yes. Like that's yeah. definitely, you just hit the nail on the head. That's what we're trying to balance, I think, internally. Yeah. So you just hit a really good point, which is you are actually sending them a monthly reminder in physical form of this subscription that they have. Yes. So if your goal is to minimize churn, how are you using that to your advantage? Like that monthly, hey, here's something coming to you in the mail. Okay. So there's a couple things. So the first thing, you know, it's actually funny when we first started we were like so cognizant of every single time you talk to a customer, you send them an email, right? Even if it's like giving them good news, giving people discounts, whatever it is, you're going to have people cancel. So it's like kind of want to just like you know, not contact them at all. But what we found is, you know, the more value you offer, you can kind of turn it from a, oh yeah, I'm still getting that to a, oh wow. Yeah. I'm so glad I got this. Right. 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 And I, I'm not sure if we've mastered it. I'm not sure if anyone could ever perfectly master it, but that's something we're constantly evaluating, right? Yeah. We used to have a term for that, what you just described back then. It was called waking the dead. So if you could avoid a reason to reach out to your customer, all the better because you were giving them, and it was a reminder, right, of something that they had that they were paying for. And just that bringing it back to front of mind had them reevaluate the product, right? And go, do I still need this sort of thing? So What I will say, and I think is a very important factor in subscriptions today, though, is that concept has been turned on its head and you just hit it. You've got to continue demonstrating value to the customer, right? There's too many options. We have too easy access to our charges on our credit cards and accounts and things like that. We're going to see it. You know, it's too hard to fly under the radar with that anymore. So 
besides that delivery of that physical good each month, what are the things are you doing to demonstrate value to the customer? Maybe, you know, through online communities, perhaps, and things like that. Okay, so if you're not doing online communities, I know it's again like agenda item, right? We tried that a little bit with a previous subscription box. I know Watch Gang does that really well, many others, right? Okay, so I can tell you there's a couple things we're doing. We're doing stuff around, so you can break it out into the product itself, the experience the customer's having when they receive the product and the experience the customer's having when they're not receiving the product. So the first part, we do a lot of structural stuff. So we do a lot of innovation around dunning. I'm not sure how familiar, you're probably very familiar. Yep. Uh, so there's a lot of ways to not give up on customers so quickly, make sure that you're expiring them at the right point for the right purpose, right? So if someone's credit card doesn't go through, um, Shopify and a lot of other, I'm not sure how Rebar handles it, but a lot of people will just give up on that customer after n many days. No, but you're right. Unfortunately, many do. Yeah. And so there's systems you can put in place, right? Then there's the actual receiving the product. So we make sure we put the MSRP on our product. We make sure the experience we're putting, you know, almost as much money into our packaging as we are into the earrings themselves. And then the final step is, you know, all the times we're engaging with the customers, they're not receiving the product. We can set them up to have a better experience when they receive the product. So to give one example, we have a Tinder game where they can swipe through our product. That allows us A, to place purchase orders more accurately, but it also allows us to optimize the likelihood that someone's going to get a product that they're like, oh, I really like this, either because mm-hmm. they liked on that exact product or because we can like, you know, find regression analysis and say, oh, wow, you know, <laughs> they have the same, you know, purchasing behavior and are likely to like some other product. Yeah. So it sounds like you guys are awfully data driven. 100% data driven. And I know that's like snotty words to say for a fashion company, but yeah. Well, it's important now more than ever, right, that you have access to that information and that you take actions on it, right, that you get the right insights from it. So what sort of tools, processes, people do you guys have in place around that? Because unfortunately, all too often, I hear that, yeah, we've got it. It's all sitting over here in some data warehouse, but we don't know what to do with it, right? And data proliferation can actually be a problem, right? You can create this big ball of yarn where it's like, yeah, I know it's there. I just don't know how to read it. So what are you guys doing? I feel like we're constantly running into that problem. We have so much data, you know, yeah. we don't know what to do with it. So I'm going to answer this to that question in two ways. The first way is we're not doing anything. I mean, there's so much data we have that we're not taking advantage of. And that's what keeps me up at night, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the other side of it is, so we don't have any employees. We handle about 17,000 units every month. And we have zero employees because data drives everything. It drives how we acquire customers. It drives how we place orders. It drives how we optimize, we monitor things like damage rates and how is that correlated with the products we send. It drives how we market the product. It drives how we engage with the customers. Again, going back to that conversation we just had, and it Mm -hmm. drives actually our logistics. So we have completely automated logistics that's heavily based on where customers are, how we can ship them the product, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Interesting. want to dive in a little bit here more when you said no employees. So sounds like you are heavily reliant on partners for some of the services. No? So we really only have two partners and everything else is just software. So I can walk you through how we did it. So I'm really proud of this. Uh, This is fascinating. Absolutely. So obviously we used to have employees, but we moved away from that. Again, it's a matter of uh, optimizing how much money you can save, which is obviously money you can reinvest into acquiring more customers, making your product better. So we have, like I mentioned, we have this Tinder game that customers swipe through, and that tells us what sort of products people like. And so the system can project 
what inventory we need to buy. So I go every year to a bunch of earring suppliers. I get photos. Often we have to pay for the photos ourselves, but we get photos of every type of earring they can produce. That gives us tens of thousands of earring images. We then let people vote on that, and that constructs our purchase orders. The system will then send that purchase order to these suppliers. Don't want to give away too much, but a lot of the magic in our business has been how we are able to produce earrings so cheap, even though they had MSRP for $15, $20 elsewhere, mm-hmm. mostly to do with you know, our own materials and kind of how the supply chain works. So once we have those products, we actually design packaging that allows them to be treated. You mentioned direct mailing, but we can basically ship our earrings as flats, so as magazines. So we worked out a custom deal with the post office. So our products, again, the system's deciding what we buy, they're getting produced, and they're going to our partner, which is just a direct mailing facility who handles these. And once a month, the system sees all the customers we have. It styles them based on what inventory we have, what they've received before, what they've liked before. And then it just runs through automated machines and gets put directly into the mail stream. We also have like a lot of other software solutions. So to give you one example is customer support. Obviously, one of the most important things, especially if you're worried about retention, right? But what I think you find out is like Pareto's principle where 80% of the time people are asking the same 20% of the questions. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? So I remember thinking, and there's really only like, give or take, eight questions people ask. And as long as, and the answer is almost always the same. Hey, my earrings Mm -hmm. are damaged. I'm really sorry, smiley face. (laughs) We'll fix that, right? Hey, I want to cancel. Okay, we'll cancel for you, right? Do you ship internationally? I mean, right, there's a finite number of questions. And some Mm -hmm. people have cases, and those are things that you have to deal with. But you can have a tiered system where, you know, software engages those people up until a certain point. It is, you know, when you call the NHS or the call the government, they're like, press nine. Just, you know, you, you don't want to give off that vibe. But I think there is yeah. a, a balance between those two. So, yeah. So everything from purchase orders getting produced to customers reaching out to us is completely automated with software. So you rely very heavily on automation, technology, operational efficiency and everything that you do. Are you the orchestrator of all of that, kind of the efficiency designer? And then do you rely on like contractors to maybe implement those things when you do see opportunities to optimize? So I have a co-founder who's got technical experience that he developed all the software. I was more on designing the operational flow, if you will. And so never say never, but there's not a lot of ways that we can optimize further. So we don't really rely too much on contractors, but I mean, like if we're redesigning something or you know, design a new package, marketing material, we absolutely do rely on one-off contract-based projects. This is very interesting. And I think it's quite atypical in some ways, right? Everybody wants to automate as much as possible. And there's a lot of great tools out there for doing a lot of those things. And of course, technology these days can enable a lot of that. But I think the typical mindset here is when you scale to a certain point and things get complicated and it's more than you can handle, you throw people at the problem. But it sounds like that's not your first instinct. You know, Nick, it is my first instinct, and that's why this company doesn't do that. So I feel like I failed so many times because throwing money and throwing people at a product backfires every time. Now, I do believe that you can find the right person. You know, YC says, hire slowly, fire fast. Mm -hmm. And I do believe, you know, you want to hire experts. I think it's a quote misattributed to Ford saying, you know, I don't know anything about how an engine works, but I employ the people that know better than anyone else some version of that, but I'm not good at throwing money at a problem. I'm not good at hiring people. They're as good as I'd like, I should say. And so 
I force myself not to do that. Anytime it seems like a good idea, really, it's just mm-hmm. me, I think, procrastinating, saying, oh, I don't want to deal with that. And when I kind of mm-hmm. just say, like, no, I have to, then you figure it out. And then either you automate it with software or you bundle it into such a small, uh, who was it? Was it F.W. Frederick, whoever it was that, you know, talked about like making things smaller and smaller until they're tiny, like machinable tasks that you can huh. assign to people. F.W. What was his name? Taylor. F.W. Taylor. Okay. That's, again, I wouldn't call that typical per se. I think a lot of people are almost view success in growth in a company as hiring more people, right? So that's just a very interesting perspective and very interesting that you have the discipline to challenge yourself each time you want to naturally go towards, you know, throwing a human at the problem. Yeah. So I think that's like the biggest mistake I made when I was first starting my entrepreneurial journey, like falling into exactly what you're saying, like 100% Mm -hmm. correlated. How many employees do I have with success? And really it's not. What success is, is the return on invested hours, you know? Yeah. Like how much can your business generate with how much time do you have to put into it? Yeah. And, and I'm by no means good at that. I mean, that's why I think things like, like what you're doing, right, are like so immensely valuable. Like why would you hire a team to manage, like software's there, like costs you nothing, you know? Like, like right. come on, people. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. And that's certainly a big difference in subscription now versus even five years ago, for that matter, just the number of tools that are out there and available, especially to startups, right? If you want to stay within walled gardens, there's no limit to the number of tools that are out there for billing and payments and storefront and really everything that you could probably need. And a lot of them very cost effective, too. You don't have to shell out a lot of, you know, upfront capital to take advantage of some of these tools. But Typically, as you start to scale, your business gets more complicated, right? You have new products, you go into new markets and things just, they don't just double in complexity. Sometimes they grow exponentially and everybody views growth as that is how I grow, right? I develop a more complicated business model, which inevitably costs a lot of money, but it sounds like you guys are doing, they're being very disciplined about these are our rails we're going to operate within. But at some point, what, when do you start to go outside of it or what key things go into evaluating that? Yeah, you know, it's so funny you should mention this. Again, like you sound like my co-founder who I attribute no small part to kind of many of these realizations we're talking about right now. So he always talked about cascading complexities, like as you add stuff. Mm-hmm. So actually it's internal stuff where we move some stuff around and he took a more hands-on role um, a couple of years back. And one of the decisions we made was we used to support all these different things like international shipping and all this sort of stuff, handbags. And one mm-hmm. thing we just, even it had like positive MPVs, even if it had positive profit flowing in, uh-huh. we just started getting rid of all these distractions. Distractions. Yeah. yeah. Because you're hundred percent right. It gets just more and more complex. Everything you do, everything you offer gets more complex. And you know, the bigger you are, maybe at some point you have to live with that trade off. But I think, for the majority of startups, at least for me, you often have a long way before you have to get there, right? Right. Okay. Well, let's go back a little bit further in time. I mean, you, you've alluded to a couple of other businesses that you've started and going through Y Combinator. Was all of your startups through YC or have you done some independent of that as well? So just my first startup was through YC. Um, okay. There's actually two startups. We got in without an idea. We did a trustable, which we sold almost immediately. And then BeatDeck, which was big data software to predict artists' success, which we exited a couple of years later. And then we founded a car rental company called Skirt, on-demand car rentals. 
Um, I left that. I moved into the subscription world uh, fashion. I worked at a company called The Tote and then launched my own uh, handbag subscription, which morphed into uh, an earring subscription because yeah. for a variety of reasons. But Gotcha. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about those experiences in terms of what you had been learning through your education and as well as what you were taught uh, by YC and then how that applies in, into the real world, especially as it relates to subscription, right? A lot of theory out there about how you scale, how you raise capital, where you market, which let's be real, these things are changing daily now, right? A lot of the ways of traditional marketing and acquiring new customers are changing and consumer expectations are changing. So what are you seeing in terms of the trends of, all right, these are some things that are more of the academic ways to scale your business versus, all right, but here's how this really works in the real world. Sure. So, so I'm actually going to, so I'll say YC was hugely influential on me. And I think what YC taught me, I can contrast that to kind of what I'm learning in business school right now. So YC takes a very pragmatic approach. And at the end of the day, this is like what I live off of. My entire mentality is based off YC. Their idea is to solve your own problem. Now, we could go deep into that conversation. You can think of, you know, there are four types of ideas, good ideas that sound like good ideas, bad ideas that sound like bad ideas. Then you have bad ideas that sound like good ideas and good ideas that sound like bad ideas. Good ideas that sound like good ideas, Elon Musk's are working on. Hey, let's make people live forever and phones that never die and let's go to Mars. Then you have bad ideas that sound like bad ideas. And those are their ideas that my dad works on. But other ideas that uh, sound stupid and no one really works on them. So all that's really left for the everyday entrepreneur for me and you and everyone else are good ideas that sound like bad ideas and bad ideas that sound like good ideas. So all you have to do is figure out which one it is and counterintuitively, what you're really looking for are ideas that sound bad, right? Because if they sound good, at the end of the day must be bad ideas. I know this is like uh -huh. a lot of wordplay, but mm -hmm. at the end of the day, there's two ways to look at that. One way is to say, how do I avoid those ideas? So how do I avoid ideas that sound good? is to kind of think about when someone pitches you something as I'm going to build X for Y. That's a warning sign that it only sounds good because X did well, right? Mm -hmm. Or when someone says, hey, I interviewed, surveyed a bunch of people. Guess what? People lie. Or when someone says, hey, I don't know anything about this business, but I think this would work. Oftentimes, they just sound good. And the more data someone has, often <laughs> the more likely it sounds good, but it's not actually good, right? YC looks at identifying the other side. So how do you identify ideas that are good, even though they sound bad? And YC's solution is solve your own problem. So if you solve your own problem, then you know the problem must exist. And, you know, that's a solution. Exactly. So build something people will want. Right. How do you find out what people want? Well, build something you want. And then, you know, mm -hmm. people want it because you're a people. And I think that pragmatic approach, I think that's what a lot of people, myself included, really get stuck on. So one game I like to play, I used to teach classes for General Assembly on entrepreneurship, on growth hacking, and everyone would come pitch me ideas, and I would ask them what was going through their head when they first had their idea and was looking to see if it existed, right? First thing you do, you save an idea, you look on Google. So if you catch yourself at that moment and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I hope this doesn't exist because I want to build it. It's a good idea. And then you say, yay, it doesn't exist. Then chances are it's not a real problem. It's mm. a business you want to build. But if you're going mm. on Google and you're saying, oh my God, I really hope this exists. It must exist because this is a huge problem I have. And I just want to download it. I just want to pay for it right now. Then chances are that's a real problem. And when you get irritated and you can't find it and you say, 
well, crap, maybe, you know, I should build this myself. That's a good idea because that's an idea that you'd actually use. You would actually use it. Probably other people would use it. Chances are, right? Yeah. So that's kind of like the YC perspective in short. And then, and again, I think the business school way is slightly different. Not to say there's not tremendous value in business school. I mean, I just actually had my final class in my MBA yesterday. And, you know, you're surrounded by absolutely brilliant professors and there's so much knowledge you can just soak up, you know, in school, like what is corporate finance? What does EBITDA mean? What is you know, management culture and how did they all interrelate? Who is Coase and Friedman and Hayek and maybe Schlumberger, depending, depending who your teacher is. So I think there's a lot of value in that from a scholastic or academic perspective. But I think when you're still in a nascent early stage part of your startup, all of that stuff is not necessarily too relevant yet. And they won't become relevant until you have users and you won't have users unless you solve a problem. Does that make sense? So absolutely it does. So yeah. So for me, YC taught me how to get from point zero to point zero point one. And then, you know, the business school can, can take off. If you have a real idea, it's got real potential, you have real users, then you need to start saying, well, what is my notepad and how do I optimize my EBITDA and how do I balance my books and what is a balance sheet and how do I raise notes and what are those notes or what is that? Oh, yeah, and absolutely. And a hell of a lot of those concepts are going to come into play as your business gets bigger, right? But when you're small, some of these things don't even really apply or certainly don't make sense in terms of academic exercise, right? Yeah. Yeah. I have so many friends who like pitch me ideas and they're, they're like, okay, I got a good idea. And they're like, okay, well, I need a, you know, for my LLC and, you know, NDAs from everyone I talk to and like, oh, well, what, what about lawyers? I need to get lawyers involved. So like, and you don't even know if your idea is going to work. I mean, statistically speaking, most startups fail. I can tell you that 98% of anything I've ever worked on has failed. Right. And I'm very proud of that because it's not a hundred percent. And I'm sure any other person that's an entrepreneur absolutely has right. the exact same experience. Right. Mm -hmm. So like before you can apply those business school knowledges, you have to get to the point where they're relevant. Set, right. Yeah. But if you have those problems and you need to solve them, like the corporate growing up problem, you should welcome those problems, right? That, that something's going on somewhere. Yeah. Good problems to have for sure. Good problems to have. That's a good way to put it. Well, I actually love the pragmatic approach, right? It's like, what actually is my problem? Can I define it? And then can I actually solve it? Right. It sounds like that has been your guiding principle throughout all of your startups. Yeah, because nothing else matters, right? Like, mm -hmm. sure, you can raise money and you can throw it off. And look, some people succeed. Um, who knows if every person is as uh, strategic and thoughtful as they would like to appear once they succeed, right? But at the end of the day, nothing matters until, unless, you know, cash is king. Nothing matters until you've actually built something and have users, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way I personally kind of look at it is there's been plenty of really smart people with really good ideas who had a good plan, went to market, and it didn't work out for one reason or another, and probably most of them out of their control. Like, unfortunately, it just happened. There have been not very smart people with not very good ideas who have made a hell of a lot of money because they just found themselves in the right place at the right time or with the right partner or the market need manifested itself right at the right time. So, I think what you're really doing at the end of the day by educating yourself and making smart chances is that you're increasing your likelihood of success at the end of the day, right? It's no guarantee, but you are, through smart decisions, improving your odds. Yeah, what is it? Manufacturing serendipity or whatever it's called. Yeah, 100%. However you want to look at that, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm fully, fully on the same page. 
So obviously the past year, year and a half has been unlike any other. What has that meant in terms of your business? Has it changed the way you guys are doing anything or you just found a lot more customers going online to shop and therefore created opportunity? So from we had a very good few months when the lockdown in the U.S. first started. Um, mm-hmm. I think that was more to do with bigger businesses pulling capital from Facebook. So mm. uh, CPMs drop. We, we can kind of dive in that conversation. I think that's a really interesting conversation. Yeah. But I think over time, the benefits kind of eroded when, when people, when these big businesses realized that people were shopping online more, it became more competitive. And then obviously iOS 14 just kicked us in the uh, groin. It was not, really? uh, yeah. Uh, so again, we rely heavily on Facebook and yeah, they roll back those changes from an advertiser point of view. Gotcha. Let's go there a little bit deeper. I am my, by no means myself a marketer, certainly no expert in Facebook. So how are you kind of optimizing that and deciding, like, cause you said there was a big impact right when COVID first happened, like what was the opportunity you saw there? Okay. So I have my own perspective on Facebook. I think going back to what you were saying earlier about how there's people with great strategies that don't succeed. And then you have some people who don't really know what they're doing. They get lucky. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times there's people that are overfunded who just go on Facebook and blow money without any consideration for mm-hmm. what's my lifetime value. You know, they might pay $50 for a user that's worth $10 and right. And worse, sometimes the VC market's okay with that. And mm-hmm. what happens is Facebook's a bidding marketplace, right? So, everyone's bidding against for the same users. And so if you have people that are spending more than they should, it raises the price for everyone. So I've seen over the years as Facebook made it easier and easier for just about anyone to give them money, the cost to acquire customers or rather the cost to get in front of customers has really increased. Right. And I believe a lot of that's due to people having more capital or focusing on things that are not bottom line. So when the pandemic hits, I think a lot of people pulled ad spend if they were just focused on growth and that helped people that were focused more on bottom line. You can actually see that in like the types of people that advertise you. This is not me like grumpy grandpa being like, oh, they don't know what they're doing, right? You can see like just like the ads that Facebook serve you. You're like, oh, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think that kind of changed. And then obviously iOS 14 a couple months ago, which is made conversion tracking a lot more ambiguous, a lot harder to rely on that data, or at least it did for me. Maybe I'm mm-hmm. doing wrong. And if I am, and you're listening to this, please reach out to me. But yeah, so I think that's still yet to be seen how that's going to affect, right? That same principle that you just said apply in other markets as well, like specifically Google AdWords? So I don't advertise on Google AdWords because we are not an intent-based business. So that is to say, People might look up lawyer in Los Angeles or lawyer in New York or whatever. They're looking for a lawyer and then it's really, really helpful to build bid on that, right? Whereas mm-hmm. with Facebook, you're bidding to get in front of someone's eyes and educating them, right? It's more prospecting. Mm-hmm. So our business, obviously, we don't do a lot of AdWords. We don't advertise on AdWords. So I don't know firsthand, but if I had to take a guess, I would say the people that are advertising on AdWords are selling a very specific product and therefore they're probably more focused on What's my ROI? How much am I paying to get a lead for my law office? And how much is that lead worth to me? Whereas on Facebook, you could say, you know, I got a million dollars from my rich father or my, you know, sister's boyfriend's whatever, right? And 
hey, my idea is going to be selling reusable toilet paper and I'm going to spend a million dollars for a customer just because I know it's going to work. You know what I mean? Inside. Yeah. Thinking, right. Yeah. So that's yeah my, my perspective. Do you see yourself getting into other Facebook-like platforms though? You know, TikTok, Discord, some of the others that are out there? Or is Facebook yeah. still king? Discord is, I think, tw- Discord and Twitter um, skew more male. We have a primarily female demographic. Okay. And TikTok and YouTube and Snapchat are ad platforms that you need a video to perform well. Mm-hmm. And we just haven't put the time into developing a good video to advertise on those platforms. So it's, again, it's on my to-do list. I think probably that's where the market's going to go, depending on, on how uh-huh. things happen. I just, I just haven't taken advantage of that fully yet. Do you see that as a much bigger investment than what you have to make for the typical ad? Yeah. Well, to do it well, I think. So yeah. uh, maybe not, right? Maybe mm-hmm. I mean, ads on Facebook, I was able to get a, you know, a couple pictures. You know, it's actually funny to go on a little tangent about this. But I think a lot of people get too fixated on their brand or what they think should work instead of what actually works. Going back to our earlier conversation, one thing that worked really well for us on Facebook was actually running ads that didn't have pictures of any earrings. It was like somewhat unrelated. It was just like a cartoon girl. And the reason it did so well is all these different people would comment on the ad and say, this is stupid. You should fire your marketing team. There's not even a picture of earrings or this doesn't look professional or whatever it was. And that would just skyrocket uh-huh. our engagement and Facebook, uh-huh. you know, show us to more people. And we ended up getting much lower costs to acquire a customer like at the end of the day. But yeah, so for me, that was a lot cheaper than saying, okay, well, when you record a video, I don't know how to do that. I can hire someone to pay someone to take a picture, but to build a script and record it and make it viral and, you know, A-B yeah. test 20 of them is a lot more difficult. I'm sure you're now going to get emails from any of our listeners who are subscription-based video content services. I'm, I'm happy to. I mean, the thing is, I feel like a lot of people are like, okay, yeah, we'll do it. Then they're like, want you to be so hands-on, right? Yeah. Also, they have unrealistic budgets for a small little scrappy startup. But yeah. Yeah. So what's next for you guys? I mean, 17,000 units a month, that is not insignificant. Where do you go from here? I want 20,000, right? Yeah. I want to keep growing until there's like no more growth. And then we can start thinking about whether it's international, whether it's selling our product in different places, whether it's selling different products, you know, we can do the five P's or whatever, or figure out how you want to expand. But I think right now I just want to focus on selling more hearing subscriptions. So do you feel like your time is better spent bringing more things into the top of the funnel or keeping them coming out the bottom or keeping a healthy balance between the two? Probably 80% new users, 20%. We really have sticky customers. I mean, we have very, very low churn. And so the majority of my time is figuring out how do I get more people into the doors than how to lose them. From a lifetime value perspective, you've been around for a little while now. You probably have enough data. Are you looking at customers as, because they're sticky, like being very long-term customers, or is this get them in, try to maximize as much as I can? I think I know the answer to the question, but I thought I'd ask. Very long-term. We're a subscription business. Yeah. Look, that's the magic. If you're a subscription business, you're going to beat out the competition because someone's selling mm-hmm. one t-shirt. And if he's selling a t-shirt for 20, he can only spend $19 and 99 cents on, you know, on marketing and production and shipping and all that stuff. If you're a subscription business and you're priced at $20, I mean, God, if your customers stay for, you know, 10 years, you can spend way, way higher. The point of sale amount is a lot less. That's the magic. So everything for us is long-term. I mean, we're low price subscription. Often, you know, we actually were so long-term focused. When we originally launched, we were trying to give our subscription away for free the first month. 
And even with fraud, it still made sense. But ironically, people are more likely to sign up for a $1 or $2 subscription than they are to sign up for a free subscription. And I think because of when the free subscription, they think, hmm, what's the catch? Is it going to be hard to cancel? Are you going to charge mm-hmm. shipping? Whereas if you're saying, look, it's a buck seventy-five for your first month, no games. Cancel immediately if you want. Suddenly, you actually get users easier. But yeah, so all that to say, 100% long-term. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot to be said for that, probably just mostly from a psychology perspective of the customer being like, I put down money for this. There's now just inherent value in what I'm getting, right? Whether there actually is or isn't, there's just that, it has that connotation, right? That you've paid for something. So I I can see how that would be the case. You know, absolutely. So I'm not even talking about a churn. I'm saying people are more likely to sign up if you charge them, which blows Mm -hmm. my mind. Yeah, crazy. Especially now, so many of us, I think all of us have been at some time or another burned by signing up for something that either we had no intention of actually keeping long-term or actually ever getting charged for and we were going to cancel, or we did and found the cancellation experience to be miserable and just didn't want to have to go through that again. A hundred percent, yeah. I mean, we've seen the horror story cancellation things. I think that's like also part of your responsibilities as a subscription business is to think about, you know, not, not making those mistakes, right? When people want to cancel, they're going to find a way to cancel. It's just how much can you piss them off and how much can you make them hate your brand first? And it's not just brand and customer reputational damage, but there's actually Visa MasterCard have very strict rules on a lot of the ways that you handle free trials and allowing customers to cancel, you know, if they sign up online now. And now we've got things like CCPA and other privacy laws and consumer trade laws that are impacting those things as well today. I mean, more than ever, right? It's only getting more complicated, not less. No, 100%. Like, yeah, like chargeback rates. Like, yeah, we have, I mean, we fortunately have very, very low chargeback rates, but we had to build a custom, I mean, since we're so cheap, if they charge, you know, $10, whatever per chargeback, it's basically, you know, N times more expensive. So yeah, I mean, that's like three months, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Got to track all of those things. Well, Avi, this has been a very fun conversation. I think there's a lot of insights and experiences that you've shared today, which are valuable to others. If anybody has any more questions or just wants to chat with you uh, further, how can they get in contact with you? So they can email me and I'm not going to give my email because that's a good litmus test whether I want to talk to someone. Is, can they find my email? Can they figure out my email? There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Take that extra step, right? I like that. What about the website? Tell us about the Earfleek site. Yeah. So it was originally built on CrateJoy about five or six years ago and we okay. brought it in-house. And really, really simple. You know, we're a subscription business. Honestly, CrateJoy kind of burned us pretty bad, and that's why we left. Just okay. stupid short-term thinking that really upset us, kind of a spite leave, partially. But yeah, I mean, a subscription business, you really don't need to rebuild it yourself, right? I mean, you are a, you're not a storefront. You're partially a product, but really you're the operations, right? You're the machine mm-hmm. that acquires customers, accepts credit cards, chooses what to send customers, sends them to customers, and handles the customer's customer support. And none of those things really need custom solutions like you mentioned earlier, right? None of those things really need 50 employees to handle. Right. Somebody wants to go to the site, earfleek, E-A-R-F-L-E-E-K.com, right? Yep. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Really enjoyed the conversation. A lot of great insights and uh, I trust our listeners enjoyed it as well. So thanks so much, Avi. Actually, Nick, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. Anytime. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Subscription Scale, sponsored by Rebar Technology. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network.